Hi, Fresh Head listeners. It's Will. If you have a few minutes to spare, it would really help us if you could fill out our new listener survey. Over the years, we've heard many stories of listeners using FreshEd in their classes and courses and for assignments. Teachers are assigning FreshEd on their syllabi, students are using the podcast to complement their course material, and there's even an example of a FreshEd transcript being published in a book. In an effort to systematically understand how FreshEd is being used and what we can do better, I want to invite you to take our new listener survey. It will only take 5 to 10 minutes of your time to fill out. Your answers and opinions will help shape the future of FreshEd. You can find the survey at freshedpodcast.com slash survey. Again, that's freshedpodcast.com slash survey. Thank you so much for your time and cooperation. We really appreciate your support making FreshEd better. This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Play is a foundational element of a child's life. Yet how much is play actually embraced inside schools? My guests today, Posse Sauberg and William Doyle, argue that play is the fundamental energy of learning. And schools need to embrace play much more than they currently do to support child development. What Posse said, it's quite a revolutionary idea because it sort of shocks some parents and even some teachers these days, which is that play is a fundamental engine of learning for children. For Posse and William, screen time and the educational reform movement that emphasizes standardized tests have reduced the amount of time children are allowed to play inside schools. We should not demonize smartphones or technology. I think we should emphasize the fact that it's a wonderful thing and it makes our lives uh, so much easier and better in many ways. But to learn to understand, you know, what to do and how, how to spend the time. And certainly as adults to, you know, model those behaviors to our children is a critically important thing. Posse Saumberg is a professor of education policy at the Gonski Institute for Education of the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. He is a globally renowned educator, author, speaker, and scholar, and one of the world's most respected authorities on educational improvement. William Doyle is a New York Times best-selling author and TV producer. Since 2015, he has served as a Fulbright scholar, a scholar-in-residence, and lecturer on media and education at the University of Eastern Finland, and as an advisor to the Ministry of Education and Culture of Finland. Their new co-written book is entitled Let the Children Play, which was published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. Posse Sauberg and William Doyle, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you very much. Hi, Will. So let me start with you, Posse. In your new co-written book with William, you basically make the charge, let the children play. Why is that? What are the benefits of play, in your opinion? Well, that's a basic question for the entire work that we have done, the, the research that took many, many years. And, you know, we, we first of all, we started with the notion globally and, and, and definitely in the United States, but also in Australia, where I am, uh, that the children don't play as much as they used to. It was a kind of a stunning to hear from experts and parents and children themselves 
that they don't have time to play. Some of the children even said that they are too busy to play. So at the same time, we started to look at the some other things that, that children and young people are experiencing. For example, that their mental health in many parts of the world is not uh, what it used to be or what it, what it should be. And also their physical activity during the school school days and um, when they are not in a school uh, has declined. So, so there are many things kind of a that young people are living with. And the kind of a final thing that we, with the William, we realize that why children are not doing this is that they seem to spend a lot of time, much, much more than a few years ago, with the technologies, with all kinds of screens. So we, we put this, all these observations together and, and we realize that something is happening in the worlds, uh, worlds of uh, children around the world. And this one thing was that they don't play as they should outdoors. Uh, so we started to look at this thing more closely and, you know, the, the benefits for all of these things about the children's well-being and, and physical health and, and mental health and many other things are obvious. So for us, the, the, the question is uh, really critically important, that what, what role the play has. And w- when we started to speak to experts um, and, and definitely the, the children's doctors, we very quickly realized that we have a huge issue there and that's why... Uh, that's why we uh, wrote this lengthy this story called uh, Let the Children Play to help people to understand more about what is at stake. And William, I guess I want to ask even a more fundamental question rather than why, but what? What exactly is play? How do we even begin to understand and identify the action and activity and process of play? Well, there are a lot of different definitions, Will. Uh, Posse and I are happy with several of them. One is the idea of periods of intellectual or physical freedom given to children at home, in the community, and especially at school, uh, where you know they have basic materials and some basic guidance, but they're largely organizing themselves, you know, under safe supervision, of course. Uh, but they're exploring and failing and failing and succeeding and collaborating largely on their own, teaching each other how to be human beings and how to, you know, fall down and skin their knee and how to build an enormous block tower together and how to thrive as children, because children learn a lot more from each other in many senses uh, than they do from adults telling them what to do. Now, what Posse said is uh, it's quite a revolutionary idea because, and it may sort of shock some parents and even some teachers these days, which is that play is a fundamental engine of learning for children. And if you don't believe us, think of what the American Academy of Pediatrics said recently, quote, the lifelong success of children is based on their ability to be creative and to apply the lessons learned from playing, unquote, unquote. which is a stunning uh, idea because schools in America have largely demolished play in the, you know, the theory being that the more academic learning you pack into the day and the more you cut recess or cut periods of choice or passion projects, uh, then they'll do better on standardized tests, which is a really absurd idea, but it's taken over much of American education. And increasingly, we understand in Australia, the UK and uh, other countries as well. Posse, do we do we have any sense of how much time children are even playing in school today? Like, is that is that empirically researched? 
there's a lot of research in different countries about that. One thing we need to um, we need to understand that the when it comes to children's play, it, there's a huge uh, variation from family to family and child to child and community to community. So, you know, just looking looking at these uh, average figures, how many hours or minutes uh, children play during the day, it doesn't really uh, reveal the whole picture. The whole picture is much more interesting when we take a look at the individual level or or kind of a types of uh, types of children. I think the interesting thing that we found for the for through the research for this book is that how little children actually have time during the school day to play, uh, and, and certainly the the outdoor free play that we with William in the book we hold as the as a highest order play, if you wish. The kind of ideal thing when people ask, so what should I do if I want my children to play in a school or uh, or at home? We say let her or him go outdoors and just play freely with other kids. And and this type of play uh, in many parts of the world has practically disappeared from schools. Uh, Australia, where I do a lot of work with the schools, uh, I've seen many schools where where the daily recess for children, uh, of which not all the time is is for free play uh, can be as little as 20 minutes a day and we also we also know through our research at the university of new south wales currently and 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 uh, there's a lot of research in the united states where where parents are clearly indicating that they when they were at their at their own children's age that they used to play much more according to our our current research uh, about 90% of the Australian parents say that when they were young as their children, they used to play much more. It's about the same rate in the United States. So, so we have a lot of evidence, uh, not, not necessarily exact minutes or hours. That is not important. I think the important thing is that things have, things have gotten worse in the lives of children in terms of their access and uh, uh, opportunities to play and, and certainly in school. So that's, that's what we are kind of a stressing in the book and uh, making appeal for parents and educators as well that things have to change. We have to rethink this thing and, and make sure that every child has at least one hour time to play when they're in a school and another hour when the parents are, are, are caretakers, are <coughs> givers are t- taking care of them at home. And Pasi, are, are there differences in terms of type of child? So children from rich families or children from particular races or you know, particular genders of children, do we see differences in, in amount of play that those different types of children are able to participate in? Yeah, well, this is a great question. I, I will ask um, uh, William to say something from the from the United States or New York City perspective. But, you know, the <clears throat> interesting thing that we are seeing now, for example, in, in places like Finland or Australia, is that the, the technology that is now available for everybody is be beginning to play an important role here in a sense that it's so easy for parents to hand over their iPad or computer or, or smartphone to the kids and let them entertain themselves indoors while the parents are doing often the same things, by the way, uh, but sometimes doing things like, um, you know, taking care of the family. You, you may have a single parent who has to cook or clean or look at, look after the other, other siblings or kids um, and you know this time is away from uh, you know going 
going to the playground or going to the forest and, and doing these things that we are talking about in this book. So, so we are beginning to see, and this is something where we have early evidence from our research now in Australia, that the children who come from the middle class or lower middle class or, <clears throat> or poor families uh, are, are more likely to be held in, indoors and, and captured by these new devices and, and gadgets as almost like a new nannies uh, for for the kids than those parents who are more affluent and who can afford who have a more luxury to spend time with the children and and probably have some other people taking care of their daily daily things but let me let me pass this to william because i i know that william is um uh, is taking a look at these things much closer in the united states than me well yes i've been looking at this as a public school parent in New York City, which is incredibly stratified economically and racially. And I've also been a public school parent in Tokyo and a public school parent in Finland, where, of course, and pretty much one hour of outdoor free play is guaranteed, built right into the system. Now, in, and, and, and similarly in Tokyo, by the way, for the younger ages. Uh, now, in the case of New York City, the poorer the school which means you know the more african american and largely uh, latinx the uh, school is the more the children are subject to a hideous practice called uh, recess punishment or recess detention where recess is literally used as a carrot uh, or a incentive or behavior modification uh, tool and i'm not talking about people fighting in the playground then you know you have to move in and separate people and deal with it i'm talking about kids being punished for late homework or um, you know, goofing around online at the on the lunch line, and then they have the recess taken away. It's at epidemic proportions in New York State. I recently was involved in multiple school board uh, resolutions being passed to ban it. But uh, what's really crazy about it is the research says that the more you let children play, the better they do on standardized tests and the better they behave in class, regardless of any anecdotal theory that a, you know, a parent or even a teacher might have. That's the reality. So we must be giving children more time to express themselves physically at recess and high quality uh, P, uh, physical education. If you go to the wealthiest schools in New York, the private schools, the one thing they do is they give every child, in many cases, daily physical education uh, of a high quality. And right now, my child in a public middle school gets a, a gym class once a week, and he gets a 20-minute recess tacked on to lunch. That's not right, and I think parents have to get together with teachers and change this. And William, are, are we talking about children in primary school, or, or, or should children in secondary school also be given the opportunity to play more? Well, Posse and I believe that play and its sort of adapted uh, versions in the higher years, play is applicable to every child on earth under the age of 18, 17 and under. Now, it's going to take different forms, but the common denominator is physical movement, physical activity and periods of breaks or um, uh, just free periods during the day because in America, we give them nothing. There's no transition time, no breaks, and that makes absolutely no sense. In Japan, my son had uh, 60 minutes of breaks and outdoor recess twice a day, so it all totaled up to over 60 minutes, and that was in elementary school. And I think uh, this is applicable all the way up to um, 17 years of age. And probably you and I and Posse could benefit from it too. 
I know I could. I could always use some more more exercise. <laughs> yeah, well, let let me jump in here because this is a critically important question: that who who are those children who should play? And just like William said, that we we truly believe that play uh, is inclusive for uh, everyone. We say, as uh, Bernard Shaw said, that we are. Um, we don't stop playing when we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. And one of one of the personal idols that I have, kind of a role models that I have, is uh, Sir Richard Branson, who is known as somebody who takes this play very seriously. He says things like "work hard and play harder." And uh, if you, uh, I had a chance to um, visit his home in in, uh, in the Caribbean a couple of times. And if you if you if you see the environment where he lives every day or most most of the most of the year it's, it's a filled with kind of ideas around everywhere anywhere you go that you know this is a place to play there's so they're they're like a like a invita- visible invitations there for you to to go and play try something new or ask somebody to come with you and play a board game or hang in a rope or do things like this and i you know i'm often asked this question that uh, people say things like I understand that the early childhood education or even primary school a place okay and you know we can do this but how about high school when the kids are in in their teens or 17 16 17 18 they're almost adults and my my response always is that you know we don't when we when we write about the the idea that all the children should play we are not talking about the same necessarily about the same type of play of course you know a 17 year old in a high school uh, will not do the same things as a three-year-old in a in a preschool or kindergarten, but the schools, you know, if you if if you walk into almost any high school in New York or in Sydney or in Tokyo or even Helsinki, uh, and you look around, there's that it's very hard to see anything at all anywhere there in the school that would give you any kind of a invitation to play. You know, the school high school buildings are uh, everything, but not the not the places for play. And this is what I'm telling people, that if you really believe in the power of play, as we do when we have been working on this book, uh, one thing you can do, uh, of course, is to make sure that young, young people, uh, high school students, have time to, opportunities to play, that they have time for themselves and, and recess. But also redesign the, the school environment in a way that you have spaces and places where where the play is present, where there are opportunities to play different types of things or try different types of things without telling people that now you have to go and play, take this 15 minute and and play in the sandbox. That's that's one way to do it. But the other other way is to redesign classrooms and hallways and uh, assembly halls in, in high schools and schoolyards in, in a way that play would be e- much easier to engage with than it is now. Absolutely. Uh, we think that school should be a child's favorite place. Children should not want to leave school at the end of the day. And you can do that. Um, you know, and, and the beautiful thing is that play delivers physical benefits, social benefits, cognitive benefits, and emotional benefits. And um, there's really no downside to it. And it is kind of counterintuitive in today's high-pressure school culture. But it's critically important that we understand this. This is not a fond memory of a bygone era when there were no smartphones and kids played safely you know, all over the world. Uh, this is a critical need for our schools to build into the program so that children are engaged and they uh, and and actually the learning gets much more efficient. That's what the research and the, ex- and the experience of nations like Finland uh, shows us. 
And I moved to Finland uh, to put my own child into the system at age seven. And I saw it, uh, you know, it's a reality. There's an entire nation doing this. It's not a, some, some fantasy. It actually can be done if we open our minds as adults. And how did your son respond when moving to Finland and, and also Tokyo? Uh, well, he's a very uh, outgoing guy. He liked the Finnish schools a lot. He did not want to leave on day one his Finnish school. He, he, he said, this, I said, why don't you, I can't tear you away from this place. Why is that? And he said, because it's fun. And I think that um, school can be challenging and rigorous and academically excellent and fun. And if we've forgotten to make, as Posse said, design our school experience, the architecture and the emotional architecture, if we've forgotten to make it really, really enjoyable for children, we're not doing our job as parents or teachers, and we've got to start thinking uh, in a whole new way. It, and um, he liked Tokyo uh, public schools um, for largely the same reasons. Uh, I find it very interesting that there was very little pressure in the early years up till age, uh, grade five. It was an atmosphere of love and warmth and real happiness in his local, you know, Tokyo public school that was all taught in Japanese. So it was a great experience for a New York uh, kid. Yeah. And Posse, you you have children and uh, I think you had a child when you were living in New York City or, or living in Boston, working at Harvard. What was your child's experience like in schools there? No, actually, what happened there, he was, uh, at the time we moved there, he was uh, just turning three. So he was not in a, in a like a primary school age uh, then. But, you, you know, to be completely bold about this experience, we couldn't afford schooling there. You know, Boston, Cambridge area is too expensive for for somebody like me to pay $20,000, uh, $30,000 a year for a daycare, basically. Uh, and, and the other experience that he didn't know anything about, but we parents were were quite concerned, was that many many of these places for three year olds were kind of filled with the uh, all kinds of academic uh, programs and uh, activities rather than play and music and and drama that we were looking looking for, and and that was a kind of a striking difference between what my experience was in Finland, where children are basically allowed to be who they are and grow up as as children all the way be, until they go to before they go to primary school at the age of 7 so um i i didn't really didn't experience any other institutional setting than the free playgrounds that we used a lot and they were wonderful places in in the Boston area the parks and playgrounds were really great hmm, interesting it's it's a fascinating you know moving between countries you you get thrown into these very different environments and yet you know, when we think about play and, and in your book, you sort of argue about reasons why play has sort of disappeared. One of the uh, reasons you point to is this, uh, what Posse has called before, the global education reform movement. So Posse, can you talk a little bit about how the global education reform movement, or GERM for short, um, has impacted play inside schools? The brief answer to this is that the global educational reform movement that often comes with the, the princip policy principles of competition between schools, kind of a performance uh, orientation, standardization, standardized testing, um, and often with the, with the faith in, in technology, that it has, it has led schools, uh, often against their, their own will and teachers' will, to focus on 
you know, getting miserable results out of their work. And it, it, this is a, it's a very clear, uh, visible thing in Australia. It's, it's been um, a visible and, and notable thing in the United States and now in many other countries in the world that the, the schools are, are kind of a put in a place where they believe that they have to compete uh, against one another and now increasingly also against other countries using these standardized test results. And if you, if, you, uh, if you do your work, kind of a serious work in that type of environment in any country, it's, uh, it's clear that the, the free play uh, has very, very little room in, in that type of uh, life. That the schools, uh, again, uh, teachers often say that we don't want to do this, but this is what we have to do, is to take all the time that they have available during the school day and often, often through homework after school, to make sure that these children are doing well in these uh, performance tests or standardized tests uh, so that the, the school or the school system can can look better. So it's been a really, the, the, the germ, as we call it in the book, has been a wrong way. Um, I, I think the good news is that it has really gained a lot of um, resistance around the world, uh, that many uh Teachers and, and school systems are really aware of the kind of a downside of the the, uh, the germ that is not only the decline of play in the school and outside of the school, but also we are seeing more and more young people claiming what the schools are doing to them when they are not feeling uh, good or when they're healthy or their 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 mental health has been declining. So so in on one way we need to be careful with this this idea of germ, not to blame each and every negative thing that we see <laughs> see around us for that. But certainly in uh, around the world uh, there's a there's a clear evidence that because of the the school policies or because of this uh, stronger emphasis on competition and standardization and testing that the children are not um, having the same opportunities to play and be outdoors and uh, feel well and happy than they used to. So that's why it's, it's, a, it's an important notion to be, to be kept in this conversation that we're having. And another consequence of, or another reason contributing to the decline of play that you point to is the sort of prevalence of screen time or smartphones and iPads and computers and all these other screens and devices that are taking children away from the opportunity to sort of play outside or even play inside um, together with other children or with other adults. William, what do we know about screen time? How much screen time are children experiencing these days when they grow up? Well, it you know, what we don't know is precisely cause and effect for the skyrocketing Rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide, for example, among young Americans, uh, which is an epidemic. It is uh, widely reported and um, backed up by the evidence. Uh, you could say, well, it, it, maybe it's the result of increased pressure in schools for performance and high standardized test data or um, scores. Or you could say it's because children are being bullied on social media or it's sucking away their physical activity time and so forth. Uh, Posse and I are, we believe that all of these things probably contribute to the skyrocketing uh, amount of screen time that children have. We don't want to uh, demonize it you know, further than it needs to be. But we do think that, for example, in schools, screens are increasingly substituting for teachers. 
and uh, there is a rather alarming proliferation of screens with no particular evidence of uh, superiority or even learning benefit in in some cases. So I think we have to think carefully about managing screen time for ourselves, especially ourselves. M many adults can't control this very well, and um, especially for children because it's creating all kinds of not only bullying, but there's eyesight problems and there's uh, just, you know, self-control problems among some children who uh, can't manage it any more than, than we can. But we do think that um, there is an alternative to this, and that is, frankly, for parents to and teachers and teachers to model getting out and running around several times a day during the work and school day, uh, going to the park on the weekend. It can be done. I mean, you know, the parks of Australia and the parks of the United States and the playgrounds they're kind of empty these days, and they're and it's a tragedy. But there's no, there's no law that we can't go out there and start rebalancing our lives somewhat. And when we do that, when we give our children time to play in a risky fashion, where they'll skin their knee, they might even bump their elbow and fall down a few times. That's going to build much stronger and happier adults, according to the research. And we really do think it can it can be done. And as Posse said, it's starting to happen around the world. Play is poised for a global renaissance, we believe, right now. It's happening in China. The hottest preschool concept in China right now, in uh, Anji County, China, is based on spending half the day outdoors building things and collaborating. And this is uh, preschool and kindergarten. And that's the national model of preschool education in China, of all places, right now. It's all about play and the academic benefits that flow from it and the emotional and physical and all these benefits that flow from it. Can I, Will, can I add here s something? Because um, um, at, at least I do think so, that we, um, we should probably speak less about screen time and we should speak more about what we are doing or what the children do when they are on screens. Um, and again, you know, there's the, the children, individuals are very different. And we should not say that if somebody has a five-hour screen time uh, daily, that it's a good thing or bad thing without knowing what they actually do uh, on screens. So and there are good things, as we know, you can have a good conversation through Skype with your grandmother, or you can design arts, or you can you can write um, novels or poetry or keep diaries. So there, there are good things that you can do in screens. I think the critical question really is that what, what are we not doing when we are on screens? So what are those things that we could be doing, but we are not doing when we are doing some of those things or we are hanging around in the social media or gaming or, or watching YouTube films or, or something like this. And those things that we are not doing are that we are not moving, we are not um, playing outdoors uh, or we are not uh, exercising a kind of a good conversations with, uh, with other people. Um, and, you know, we have 24 hours a day, all of us, uh, and children should sleep around 10 hours, 10 hours a day. Then they go to school for another six, seven hours a day. So the time that they really have available for all kinds of other things, and certainly things that we, uh, are linked to directly to their well-being and health, uh, are the, the hours that they really should, we should, as adults, we should be careful to guide and help them to use them in, in a way that is really benefiting them. And often the time when you sit down and you watch and stare 
uh, any any type of screen is not really the best way to to spend that time that you have available. But we should not, as as William was saying, that we should not demonize smartphones or technology. I think we should emphasize the fact that it's a wonderful thing and it makes our lives uh, so much easier and better in many ways. But to learn to understand, um, you know, what to do and how how to spend the time, and certainly as uh, as adults to you know model those behaviors to our children is a critically important thing. So it seems like, you know, a lot of the sort of suggestions here are very much geared towards individual parents and their children. And that sort of makes sense in a way. But what about teachers? What about, you know, those individuals that are working within systems that are sort of high pressure, following some of these, you know, germ ideas of of standardized tests and focus on academic subjects rather than play? What advice would you be able to give them? to how to navigate if they you know if they believe in play how can they go about their daily lives in these systems that sort of push them in very different directions well first of all if i can go first i would say that read our book because the, the book is is an appeal and invitation to you know think further about this my experience in many countries is that uh, although most people have a kind of an idea that play is good and it's something that children should do but there's still teachers and parents and policymakers and grandparents and others. They don't have a kind of a this solid, convincing evidence that they could use to have these conversations. So my my thinking in uh, and this is based on my experience in Australia is that first of all, these are very these are local issues. We the 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 lack of play or the power of play is is not just a kind of a national universal thing. It's a it's a local thing because. Families are different, individuals are different, schools are very different. So the solution to this thing that we are we are putting forward and kind of a, uh, indicating in our book with uh, with William um, is a local solution. So it's a uh, these are solutions found in each and every community and conversation. So that's why I think the 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 most important thing that teachers and parents together should understand is that they can change these things, that they, they can make a difference in their own communities and schools, that nobody should wait for Superman to come and save and say what to do, because it's not going to happen. <laughs> the national governments or policymakers will not change the, the regulations and laws and policies uh, uh, quickly enough to make a difference. So the change will come from the con- uh, communities and schools through these conversations. And that's where we think that the book can be helpful because it can provide some of these themes on evidence or topics that the teachers and parents and children together can uh, can uh, have a conversation about. And that's the only way to move forward. And, uh, you know, the good, good news is that I, I see these community-based solutions and conversations emerging in Australia now. They have been much more present in Finland and some other countries in Scandinavia, for example. But the, the good what keeps me going with this book and this this uh, theme is this notion that there are more and more uh, communities, often led by some parents, uh, sometimes uh, engaged with the led by children uh, and teachers in the schools, to say that hey, wait a minute, we didn't know this, or we didn't realize that you know this is what we need to do, and this is what the children need, or we didn't uh, really you know think about the you know what can be the consequences of spending too much much time sitting or uh, you know using technology and that that's why i think this understanding that we, we are dealing with the with a very complex problem 
that can never have a binary solution is a critical thing to move forward through these community-based uh, conversations and solutions. And William, how would you say change is going to happen in regards to play? Well, uh, excellent question. Here's the thing that's, in my opinion, very amazing, and that is that a system built upon standardized test pressure and, uh, uh, you know, well, that's the governing metric of education, uh, has no evidence behind it. And that's the system. In other words, there's no evidence says that that results in better learning, happier children, long-term life success, or anything. Um, so in other words, it's sort of an emperor's new clothes, like a cycle of complete lack of evidence that we're chasing our own tail. On the other hand, uh, a system based upon play and physical activity has a wealth of uh, information behind it. And step one, a wealth of evidence behind it. Step one is to look at, uh, we have a section in our book that identifies the seven greatest research papers on this subject. You know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Academy of Medicine. Uh, these are the greatest doctors and scientists in the world, some of them. And they all agree children must play in school uh, a lot. And that is an engine of learning. And uh, so the evidence, I think step one is to familiar, familiarize or refamiliarize parents and teachers and children, why not, with the evidence. And then finally, Will, uh, not to get too cosmic on you, but when we were researching this book, we came across an astonishing quote from the Old Testament in which a female force, a biblical force known as Wisdom, capital W, that is her name, revealed the secret of creation. And she says, uh, quote, I was with him, meaning God, I was with him forming all things. I was delighted every day, playing before him at all times, playing in the world. And my delights were to be with the children of men, unquote. In other words, God created the universe with wisdom as his assistant through play. If you look at that carefully, you think, wow, wait a minute, maybe there is something to this idea of playing with children, particularly. So um, we do think it's a neglected topic that answers some of the most important questions our children face today and will face over the long the long run. And as, as, as Posse said, incredibly co uh, complex subject, but we think that uh, if we forget this, uh, we have little hope of improving things for our children. Well, Posse Sauberg and William Doyle, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Will. Posse Sauberg and William Doyle are co-authors of the book entitled Let the Children Play, which was published by Oxford University Press earlier this year. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.